The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, As you're turning there, I just want you to know, if you need a Bible, we have Bibles for free. We always keep tons on hand, and uh, that's a gift to you. We don't want anything from you. We just want to give you a Bible if you don't have one. So those are available. You can ask an usher after service uh, or just step back into the hospitality area across the hall, and there'll be a big stack of them back there, and those are free. Um, Our gift to you, if you don't have a Bible right now or an app, some way to follow along, we will have the verses on the screen so everybody can study God's Word together. So what are we going to do today? Today we are continuing in our series called Refined, and we've been going verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, And even though we've gone through this book in pieces, every section that we have studied, we've seen Peter commanding and encouraging believers to live in light of the example of Christ. Everything he's saying to us, he keeps tying it back to Jesus. The majority of this letter is telling us what to expect in a world that is broken because of sin uh, and how to react. But every single time he's instructing us about our reactions, he's pointing back to the person and the work of our Savior King. Uh, His name is Jesus, and he's the perfect example. And Peter keeps pointing us to Jesus as the motivation to joyfully obey uh, the things that we're being commanded. So... uh, I was thinking about that. There was a preacher in the late 1800s who wrote a book, and there was a youth leader from Michigan in the late 1980s who made some bracelets. And uh, those two are credited together with the popularity of the slogan, What Would Jesus Do Through the 1990s? Now, I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to just gel cohesively as a church family and tell the truth. How many of you remember, first of all, the WWJD products from the 90s. Let me see your hand if you remember. Okay. We're going to take it a step further. How many of you owned and or wore? Thank you, sir. Some of that awesome WWJD merchandise. My hand is not raised to show you how to raise it. It's because I had some. Uh, It went all the way up to sterling silver necklaces. There was was some cool stuff. Uh, Those classy silicone bracelets. They were dope. Um, I, I brought that up because I contend, this, this guy in the 1890s, he wrote a book, What Would Jesus Do?, and um, based off a sermon series, and, and, and a youth leader started the bracelet thing in the late 80s, but I contend that Peter should get first credit for the craze, uh, because this whole book of the Bible keeps pointing us to what Jesus did and calling us to live in light of it. So we could have named this series, What Would Jesus Do?, but it just wouldn't have gone over well, because too many of you have painful memories from the 90s, so we don't want to bring you back there. Um, I thought the 90s were great, but, you know, to each their own. Uh, it, it, honestly, it, what would Jesus do is not a bad thought process. And to me, it's a, it's a little bit tragic that it got, like, so commercialized and then kind of became what it became, almost kind of the butt of a joke. Um, because really, to think through what would Jesus do in this situation is a pretty helpful thought process, really. Uh, but now, when you think of that, because of how big it got and, you know, it was in put in so many cheesy contexts, right? Like, now it gets lumped in with those Christian tees. Like, uh, there was one that had the Budweiser logo, and instead of Budweiser, it said God's Wiser. That one really happened. 
Anybody else ever see that? So here's what happened. I, and I got to tell you this. this. This floored me. I actually started looking. I knew no one would believe me that that was a t-shirt. It was. I know that I saw it actually in public on a person one time. So God's wiser instead of Budweiser. I was trying to look for this shirt. I couldn't find the picture. But I, there was this one that was like the um, Mountain Dew logo. It was like, do the do was, was their big deal. This shirt, guys, this is not a joke, said, do the Jew. I'm not lying. <laughs> and then in small text, it said, and never thirst again, John 4. I felt dirty just looking at this image on Amazon. Like, if you wore that, you, you're probably going to go to hell. That's bad, man. It's like Ralph and Frank are in the t-shirt department. Like, is this, is this okay? I don't know. Kids like Mountain Dew. Print it. Okay, we'll go for it. Like, no, man. No. That's what happens. Oh, man. Okay. That is not my point at all. None of that. I, just, I had to share that with you because it's real, and we just need to know that. I don't know how that's going to help, but we need to be aware of just how, where the world's gotten. My point in talking about all that is that Peter calls us to, uh, what Peter calls us to in this letter, it, 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 it's the same idea. We, we live this way because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So uh, same idea as, as the what would Jesus do things started out as. Um, this set of verses today, this idea that Jesus, uh, what Jesus did, who Jesus is, has implications for our life, it'll be no different. It's following the same, I mean, that's essentially the ebb and flow of this entire book. So we're going to uh, see some of the same things today. And honestly, I'm, I'm thankful. Um, Peter is Christ-centered in his writing, that he understands the best motivation for us and the most helpful thing for us to think about is how our Savior lived, the, the reality of the gospel um, the price that he paid. These things should be helpful motivations as we battle our way through a world that is broken uh, and we deal with individual choices on a given day. And so uh, I'm thankful that he doesn't have a bunch of auxiliary ideas, that he keeps it real focused on the person and work of Jesus, which happens to be what the whole Bible is about. So amen. Let's read First Peter 4. We're going to do verses 1 through 11 together, okay? Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, he starts right off from giving you the motivation from the jump, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Praise God for his word. Amen. We'll come back to verse 1 here of chapter 4 and uh, just start working through it. So it says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Okay? So what's a good question? What was that purpose? The command is arm yourself with the same purpose. What was the purpose? Jesus said he came to do a lot of things. If you put them all together, you, you can summarize it to some degree in the idea that he came. He, he came and he suffered to serve and to save the lost. And so when you suffer like him, motivated for, by love for others, it doesn't make you sinless, but you will definitely sin less. And so Jesus had a mission. He came, and there was all kinds of, there was people that questioned him. There was sometimes he just offered up the information. He said, I came to serve, not to be served. He, came, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, he even came to some degree uh, to bring and reveal the glory of God as to be a perfect reflection uh, to us so we can understand more about who God is and how God is. We see that in the person of Jesus, the way he reacted to things. So he had all these purposes. But, but you can summarize in the fact that he did come to serve and to save those that were lost. And so when he's saying, he says, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So having the same purpose helps you to deal with the whole premise of this book, which is suffering well in light of Jesus and what he's done, right? Because there is going to be difficulty. Um, if somebody's preached to you at some point that if you surrender your life to Jesus, that means everything's going to go well, prosperity is guaranteed, you'll always be healthy um, as long as your faith is, is up, um, I'm sorry they lied to you because that's not the truth. Uh, there's still going to be challenges. There's still going to be difficulties. That's why Peter essentially wrote an entire letter about how to navigate the difficulties of a world that doesn't look like it's going to eventually. Uh, part of how we navigate the difficulty of a world that's broken is remembering the promise that one day Jesus is going to fix it. Sometimes, in some days, I don't know if you've ever been here, friend. I have. Some days, the only thing I have to cling to is that Jesus said he's going to fix this. Because everything around me is not looking so good. There's not a whole lot of things to pull hope from in the immediate term or what I'm aware of, but I know he's promised uh, to fix everything that's broken, and so some days I'm just clinging to that. But uh, So Jesus came with a mission, and that's what he's saying. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He, is, he told his disciples, I'm sending you the way the Father has sent me. And so if we understand that our mission and purpose is also to love and serve, seek and save, to be a part of God's gospel mission in the world... It doesn't mean that we're going to never sin again. And, and I'm going to show you why. Uh, he says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's, you have to follow his whole train of thought. Again, this is another place where if you just grab that verse, you could think, oh, okay, so if I suffer in the flesh at all, that means I can get to the point where I'm perfect. There are those who believe that scriptures like this, and what he's doing here is he's describing a change in your way of life and overall direction, not teaching that you're going to get to the point where you can be pre-eternally perfect, right? He's not saying that you're going to get to the point before either Christ comes, takes us away, or you die and you're with him, that, that you're going to be able to achieve perfection. There are 
fairly large amounts of people that have believed that. They've taken verses like this and thought that's what it meant. Uh, the problem with that is that it's, it's not biblical, and it only causes people to lie and hide their faults when they are inevitably imperfect. Either that or they just they convince themselves even that they've gotten there. Because if they, if they believe what God's calling me to is to be perfect now, um, that can be, it can be really difficult to live a life with that being the expectation because if you have any level of self-awareness, you're going to know that even if you can modify all the external behaviors to match that, on the inside, there's still stuff that's jacked up. So um, it's, it's, it's really problematic. I'm going to give you just a couple verses. There's many, many more that if you have to take the, the harmony of all the scriptures, and really, if you, even, if you even just look here, you'll see that that's not what he's saying. But I'm going to give you a couple things to think about. Why is Peter not teaching here? Why are we certain he's not teaching pre-eternal perfection as a high bar of what Christians should be striving for? Okay, first verse. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, he says, my little children. You okay with being called little children? That's good and humbling, isn't it? I'm glad, I'm glad John talked to us that way. My little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See, this seem, that part seems like it would support group A, right? He's, he's writing his book so that you may not sin. There it is right there. See, if I, if I listen to what's in his book, then I won't sin. What's the next thing he says? And if anyone sins, <laughs> we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? And so you got to read the whole verse. you got to take it all together. Point being... He is writing the book, because you can go to the other side of the thing, right, and say, well, because of grace, it doesn't matter. We're just going to be sloppy, do whatever we want. I mean, Peter's going to deal with that real firmly here in just a second, but you can go on one side and say it just doesn't matter, sin doesn't matter, grace covers it all, and so my behavior has no bearing on anything. Or you can go to the other side and say, absolutely everything matters, and I need to try to be perfect, and that's what God's calling me to. In the middle of that is the truth, which is the Bible has been given to us so that we may not sin for a couple reasons. One, so that we can be joined with Jesus in his mission of seeking and saving the lost, but also so that we can have more joy in this life. Because if we would just buy the simple premise that every single time we do something God's asked us not to do, it creates pain. Every single time uh, we don't do something he's asked us to do, it creates pain. It never leads to more joy. Even if in the short term it seems like it did, it always leads to destruction for us and those around us. So sin never helps. It always hurts. The Bible has been given to us to help us to not sin, but John said very specifically, I've written all this so that you may not sin, so that you can avoid the pitfalls, the dangers, the pain of sin, so that you can be more so involved in um, being an ambassador of the gospel to a world that needs it, so you can be the salt and light that I made you to be. I'm, I'm, that's why I wrote my book. But when you sin, <laughs> remember you have an advocate with the Father, so that then condemnation doesn't grab a hold of you and you don't end up knocked out of God's will for your life on the other end, uh, beating yourself up and believing lies, that somehow now you're unworthy uh, to be connected to Jesus and, and being a part of what he's doing. Amen? I hope that's good news for you. It is for me, um, because if I, I, no part of me wants to be sloppy about obeying the Lord, and we're going to talk more about that in a second, but I am really thankful that he's not asking me to be perfect right now. Because I'm just so aware that I'm not. I'm not. The idea that he's not asking that of me doesn't make me strive any less to be like him. I want to be like him because I love him. Um, and I, and I want to be more useful for him. But uh, on the other side, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that when I, when I do come short of that goal, 
I have an advocate. His name is Jesus. Um, he's looking out for me and that uh, grace is available because I need that on the daily. Praise the Lord. Uh, Romans 7 also comes to mind when Paul describes the inner battle between the flesh and the spirit, right? He's saying, like, there's things I want to do as a result of serving Jesus, but then I don't do them, and it's confusing, and it's frustrating, and I always feel like I'm going to fight with myself. So that and many other places, we, I, to, I know I told you I'd give you one verse. That was a bonus. I wasn't trying to fib, but, you know, it just came to mind. So Romans 7 as well kind of pushes back against that idea that perfection right now is what he's saying here. Um, and, and, and he explains what he's saying if you just keep reading. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And so what he's saying is, as you suffer, as you suffer like Jesus has suffered, as you pay the price that it, it, it inevitably comes in following him, um, what's going to happen is that that's going to be an indicator that's going to help you know that there, there has been this like overall life change, direction change, where... No longer am I just living for the lusts of men, but overall for the will of God. That's, that's what he's talking about. Um, that's what he means. Because sometimes, I don't know if you ever ask yourself this, probably be a good thing to do. Do I really belong to the Lord? Am I, not in, not in like a condemning, grace, you know, um, graceless way or believe in the lies of the devil, but just examining the fruit in our own lives, right? The Bible says if you judge yourself first, then no one else will have to do it. So these are good questions for us to ask and think through. One of the ways we can know we belong to him, one of the ways we can know we're on the path uh, of obedience is we're going we're gonna to have to arm ourselves with the same purpose. And, and there's going to be some suffering in this flesh and in this world as a result of following Christ. Like, it's the exact opposite of the lie that people say, you know, come to Jesus so you can have health and wealth and happiness in all that you do, right? Like, Peter's promising us. See, there's, a, there's a set expectation that, hey, if you follow Jesus, actually there's going to be some parts of this that might be tougher for you. That's going to happen. Um, but if the gospel is preached rightly and, and people really understand what they're looking at, whatever suffering may happen, whatever difficulty may come as a result of following Christ in this world, pales in comparison to the prize, that pearl, right, of great price. What do we get? We get Jesus. <laughs> we get him now and for eternity. And so... Uh, the rest just kind of fades to dim, right? Amen for that. Okay, uh, verses 3 and 4 kind of go together. Um, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Okay, so let's deal with the obvious thing first. This, it kind of jumps out at you. Um, people that tend towards legalism probably really like these verses, and this is the only part of it they would talk about, but we'll say it first because he is saying it. Followers of Jesus cannot be wasting time on the kind of foolishness described here. Okay? I, I think that doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. The question would be why, though, and I would just draw you back to the overall premise of 1 Peter to begin with. Verse 1 is the why that we as followers of Christ can't be wasting time with this kind of foolishness. What is verse 1? Since Christ has suffered in the flesh. See, all of this ties back to the fact that, well, well why can't I live like everybody else? Why can't I do these things that look like they're going to be fun? Well, ultimately, if, 
if you can't connect the dots yourself of how any of those things that God's asking you not to do are going to hurt you, let's just say you can't. And let's be honest, that happens sometimes, right? Sometimes you look at the thing and you couldn't really figure out, if I do that, that could destroy my life. Like, you don't see it. Now, I believe that by faith because I know God's intentions are good and I know what he restricts is something that's not good for me. But let's just say I can't figure it out. I don't see the, I don't see the line between the two dots of if I go do this, it's going to hurt me. But I don't, I don't necessarily need to. First of all, I need to trust him. But secondly, there's this other motivation. Like, he's asked me not to do that and he suffered in the flesh for me. Like he came and lived a perfect life, and then he died on the cross, a criminal's death, submitted to torture, was separated from the Father, took all the wrath of God so that I could stand today with hope of being called righteous, redeemed, and reconciled to the God that loves me. And so if I'm running low on motivation uh, in obeying God, I should just come to 1 Peter, because anywhere you go, we've been cutting this into half chapters, we haven't found a half chapter yet that didn't say, Hey, whatever we're talking about, remember that Christ went through it. Remember, whatever we're talking about, if, if you're struggling to do it, remember how much Jesus has paid for you. And in, and in that, find the strength to obey. Out of gratitude for what he's done. Uh, love him in return, <laughs> the way he's loved you. And part of that is to obey him. Uh, so that's, that's the Why? Um, we, we don't have time as followers of Jesus for the kind of foolishness listed here. We who were bought with the blood of Christ must live for the will of God. Um, that's why those who claim to have a relationship or have some kind of special relationship with God but continue on without conviction in these kinds of activities likely do not belong to him and eternity in hell is a real possibility for them. I just need to say that and let it sit there a second, because that's the reality. If you continue on with no conviction in this kind of activity, in the things listed here, there's others, but Peter focused in on these, uh, and you don't think it matters, your, your special relationship with Jesus where he understands that you have it harder than everyone else, and so that's why you do these things or whatever it is, that's, that's not how this works, man. God gave us his word. It applies to all of us. He's given you the same opportunity he's given anybody else to obey or disobey these things. He's offered you the same strength through the power of his spirit to reject temptation and to obey the master. And so I just need to say to you today, if, you, if you've been somebody who thought the way Satan has deceived you is to convince you that you and Jesus have special accommodations set up and what everyone else has been taught through the Bible is that applies to them, but you've got your own thing going. Um, that's not true. Um, we love you, and we hope that you see that, and we hope that you're willing to repent and to uh, bend your will and your ways uh, to God's, to see that he's never trying to keep some good thing from you, friends. And we've been believing that lie since the garden. The ultimate problem in the garden is that Adam and Eve bought this lie. God is holding some good thing from you. Isn't, isn't that what the serpent said? They, they, Adam and Eve said, if, God said, if we eat that, we'll die. It's like, you're not going to die. What's going to happen is you're going to be like God. You're going to see and understand good and evil. There's, there's knowledge, there's wisdom, there's some good thing here that God's held back from you. He got them. They grabbed that thing and went for it. Honestly, 
the situations and, and the, the specifics of the temptation changes all the time, but the heart of it is always the same. Will you trust that if God's asked you not to do something, there's a reason? Can you trust that if he's asked you to do something, there's a reason? There is. Hallelujah. It is not abstaining from these kind of activities that saves someone from an eternity separated from God. We need to say that very clearly because that's another place where you get messed up on this. You could get very focused on these external behaviors listed here and, and you could very much tie that to righteousness and get confused about what's going on. It's not abstaining from these kinds of activities that saves someone from an eternity separated from God. But those who have been saved from that terrible fate that they rightly deserved, by the way, should joyfully lay down this type of foolishness. Obeying these things will not save you. But if you've been saved, it should be joyful and, and, and somewhat easy to put these things down in contrast to what you've been given, uh, the gift of eternal life through Christ. Not something that we earned, not something that we were owed by any means, right? It's a free gift because of God's great mercy. You're not going to be any closer to being saved by doing these things or not doing these things. It's by grace through faith. Um, but once you receive a gift like that, once somebody lets their blood, perfect lamb of God, lets his blood flow down the cross for you, buys you away from sin and death uh, with the most precious currency. Peter says it several times in this book. If you've been around, you've heard him over and over. He's like, you've been bought not with silver and gold. He's trying to make this point. Silver and gold is the most expensive thing he can think about. He's like, guys, you weren't bought with that. That wouldn't have been enough. Something much more precious and much more valuable had to be used for your purchase to get you away from sin and death. And it was the blood of Christ. Far more precious than silver and gold. And so um, gratitude and realization of that can help and should help motivate us towards obedience to what God has asked. Let's keep in mind... Oh, remember this also. Jesus said more than once to, to this idea that, well, maybe that's for everyone else and I've got something special. Jesus said more than once, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Okay, and, and we, just, we have to let the weight of that sit on us. Um, again, it's not about, you can't take that and say, okay, well, I, I sin and stumble and sin sometimes and so that means I don't love him. That's not what he's saying. If, if you love him, though, you will care about his commands. If you love him, you will seek to have his help to obey his commands. You'll want to. You'll care about it. Are you going to get it perfect? No. That's why First John said, when you don't, there's an advocate. Jesus is there with his grace to love you, lift you up, help you, dust you off, and send you along the trail, right? That's, that's what it looks like. But um, if you do love Jesus, you're going to at least care about trying <laughs> to obey his commands. And so you got to ask yourself, do you? Um, because there's a lot of people that will run around and say, I love God, but there's a whole lot about their life that, that doesn't back that up. And if you're not willing to at least put effort towards and, and pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to obey him, it, it's, it's not a good sign that you really do love him. Uh, and that's just reality. We, we have to we have to deal with the terms and the, the boundaries that God gives us instead of all this other kind of ethereal stuff that we just create. Uh, keep in mind as well that the whole tone of this letter 
is pointed towards those who have recently come to faith in Christ. Remember, he's going through two and three. He's talking to people that have come to know Christ underneath a difficult government, people that have come to know Christ and maybe they, somebody else owned them at that point. So how do you deal with that? Uh, wives that have come to Christ but their husband hasn't, how do you deal with that, right? And so a lot of this, he's, and think about the time he's writing it, right? Like the latest dates for this is like 60s AD. And so there's not, nobody's, nobody's been a Christian for 80 years yet, right? Because it's, it's pretty new still. So he's, he's, he's writing, he's teaching and you can hear it in the tone over and over again. He's, new converts are on his mind, people that are just coming to the faith, learning how to do this thing. And uh, it's really sad, though, to me, that we have to have the same conversations about things like this with people who, who have supposedly known Jesus for a long time. I mean, we're, we're still we're having to circle back around to basic stuff like don't get drunk, <laughs> right? Don't... Uh, don't just give in to sexual lusts and do whatever you want to do, right? Like, and, and, and caring about those things. Like, that's, this is, this is kind of, these are, these should also almost be like self-evident. Like, he's, he, he's writing to new converts and, and they maybe need to hear it for the first time. But man, it's like, something, sh- a bell should go off. And, and, and why it doesn't is, is sometimes confusing and frustrating. But uh, the reality is, we should let that motivate us even more. Those of us that have been walking with Jesus for a while, if, if sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, this is still like the, the daily stuff of our struggle. Um, can, I just, can I just commit to you this idea? Like, would you submit that to God in prayer? Would you hope for like some victory in that? Don't, don't just sit down in it. Don't believe this hyper-grace junk that says... Um, well, because God loves you right where you're at, you don't really need to care about whether or not you are, are overcome with various sins and temptations. Like, it does matter what you do. It does matter because it's not just about your life. It's not just about the damage that these things are causing for you. It's about the fact that once you become a believer, you're supposed to take on the purpose Christ had. That's what he started this with. Therefore, have the same purpose that Christ did in suffering in the flesh. And what did we say his purpose was? Seek save and serve and love the lost. You're supposed to be in that. And I think a lot of times, man, we're, we're just so encumbered with our own chains, we, we don't have the strength left to be breaking anybody else's, to be running around trying to unshackle other people, uh, which is really part of the mission we've been called to, of course, only by the strength and the power of God, which he makes clear as he wraps this thing up. We'll get there in a second. Uh, now, just in case anyone's feeling pious or superior because they've never been drunk or had sex outside of marriage... Um, he doesn't let any of us off the hook, so we'll just let's get everybody in here um, and have a good time. So, abominable idolatries. What's he talking about there? Probably talking about pagan worship issues, right? There, in that time, there's a lot of different. I mean, this could be worshiping false totem deities, um, the Greek pantheon, what, whatever uh, Roman gods. So that could have been what's going on then, but um, more likely in our culture, we see people with issues of worship of leisure, worship of entertainment icons, worship of kids and family, or jobs and careers. Uh, and what do I mean when I say that? That might sound weird to you. Well, every one of us has been created to worship, and everybody's worshiping something. And how do you figure out what you're worshiping? What does that look like? Where you give your time, talent, and resources. What inhabits the majority of your thought life? This is what you worship, what you're focused on, what you pour yourself into. Um, 
this is who or what you worship. And so for a lot of people today, we have an, we have an abominable idolatry, but it, it doesn't look like idols of old. Um, Satan is sneaky, and so he knows, that, he knows that we think we've gotten too smart to carve little wood totems and put them on our fireplaces and bow down to them. Um, we, we're beyond that. We're, we're advanced now, but um, we'll pour billions and billions of dollars into uh, entertainment venues and um, just whatever it is, right? I, I don't want to go after a bunch of specifics. Here's the bottom line. Um, this is going to be offensive enough without me picking on your specifics, but we all got, <laughs> we all got stuff. None of us is, is out of this thing. When it comes to abominable idolatries, um, I think it was Luther who said, our, our, our hearts are idol factories. Every single one of us, you just need to know this about yourself. Every one of us will struggle with the temptation to put something in between us and God. We are always struggling with the temptation to give allegiance, affection, attention, uh, to devote resources to something other than the God that made us. And so uh, that's why we need to be prayerful and introspective ourselves in, in looking for these things. We need to open our lives up for inspection and input from other believers to say, hey, you know, and maybe they're wrong, but at least I'd rather have someone look in and say something than, than be worshiping an abominable idolatry, right? Like, uh, hey, it seems like you have an inordinate amount of fixation upon this thing or whatever. Like, I, I, I would hope the people that love me and know me um, feel welcome to say those things and then would have the guts to do it. Um, but the reality is every one of us struggles with that tendency. It, it can be your kids, man. It could be, it could be your marriage, there's, there's almost no limit to what we can create. We can turn into a false functional savior because every one of us. This is part of what Peter's doing. This almost this whole book, like I told you before, is trying to help us deal with the fact that things are not like they're supposed to be. You're going to encounter the results of brokenness. And where does idol worship come from? Where does these abominable idolatries come from? It comes from men and women constantly trying to pursue relief from the brokenness. All of us can sense the brokenness. All of us, to some degree, realize things aren't like they should be. Everybody's aching on the inside. The question is, what do you throw at the ache? Right? Is it sex? Is it substances? Is it, do you try to entertain yourself to the point where you can't have a thought deeper than uh, what's the next show or, you know, I've memorized all these sports stats or whatever it is. If you just keep your mind busy all the time, then you don't ever have to think about the fact that something hurts in me. Something's not right. There's something broken. Something's missing. Um, and the reality is, we have more opportunities to entertain, entertain ourselves into oblivion and no deep thought than any, more than any culture ever has. We don't even have to get up anymore. <laughs> uh, we have a device within our reach at almost any point that we can stupefy ourselves if we so choose. And so th- what you need to know is that is a temptation for you, not somebody else. This isn't a... If you're sitting there thinking, ooh, this would be a great sermon for so-and-so, no, no, no. <laughs> Stop it right now. This is a good sermon for you. You are tempted to entertain yourself into oblivion. You are tempted to just skim the surface and not deal with things in the way that we've been instructed to here, which is to continue to tie it back to the hope we have in Christ, to immerse ourselves in the mission of God so that not only are we aware of the brokenness, but we're actually actively being a part of healing and bringing hope about that brokenness. That's, how, that's why Jesus said it's better to give than receive. 
you can stupefy yourself through various <clears throat> worship of various whatever distractions. That's one way to cope with the fact that nothing's like it should be, that everything's broken. But that's hollow, and it's exhausting because you have to keep chasing something else. You've got to keep finding something else to shove in the hole uh, because, man, that thing screams pretty loud, and it, 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 it demands something to, to be put in there. So that's not a good way to go at it. The other way you can go at it is, is surrender to Jesus, trust in him, let him come and fill that gap. Let him come and be what makes you whole and be able to find contentment and peace in the midst of a world that is broken. And then the beauty is, um, you, if you really jump into what he wants you to jump into, you won't have a bunch of time uh, to have to seek out distractions or worship entertainment or uh, whatever else because you'll be busy about the Father's business. Um, you'll be actively engaged in uh, showing other people this kind of hope that, that God has graciously given you, uh, it's, which is why in a few verses we're going to be called to, above all, keep fervent in our love one for another. Because if our life is about loving one another, if our life is about loving others, it leaves little room for the lies of the devil that seem to pull us off to the right and to the left, into distractions, and into what uh, is described here as dissipation. Um, if, if you're going through the Bible and it's listing all this stuff, right, like essentially he's saying we don't have time for this foolishness. You ha- however much time you spend in that foolishness, that was enough time, right? That's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. That... That was enough time wasted doing all of that stuff. So what does he list? He lists all the things he lists. And then, and then the, next, the next verse, in verse 4, he starts to say, and, and, and people around you are, they're surprised that you don't rush with them headlong into this dissipation. And I think sometimes we hit stuff in the Bible and we're like, dissipation. Well, I don't know what that means, but I'm sure I don't do it. You know, <laughs> just like keep on cruising. Well, I don't do any orgy stuff, and I don't get drunk, so I think I'm pretty good in verse 3 and 4 there. We just keep on moving. I like this one about loving people up the way, so get over there. No, listen, man. Every one of you, to some degree, is, is, is guilty of, of, of idolatry. Uh, you're at least tempted by it. What is dissipation? What does he mean there? He, he, he's pretty much dissipation is a junk drawer for everything he listed above, and anything else you could think of, it all goes in there. What does it mean? Dissipation is defined as excess or overconsumption, such as squandering of money, energy, or resources. So if, if you want, I'm going to give you an, a, a sincere opportunity right now. If you want to come up here and say, I am never tempted to and never fall prey to the temptation to squander any resources of time, energy, or money. If you've reached the place where that's never a problem for you ever, you're that elite in your Christianity, I would like to invite you to come up and take this mic and I'll sit down. Any takers? I'm re- real serious about it. You're totally cool all the time on that. Jesus has healed you of any temptation in this area to ever waste any time, any money, any resources of energy. No, nobody running, anybody in the back? Like Billy Graham, anybody back there? No, okay. Nope, right? So we're all in this. So let's not look at the drinking parties and the, the, the lusts and stuff. And maybe if God's given you, if you had problems with those things and God's given you victory for those, hallelujah. Let me just say, I rejoice with you for victory in every area of sin in your life. Hallelujah. For every single set of chains that has been cracked off of the wrists of God's people, ground into dust, and then thrown in the devil's face. Hallelujah for all that. But let us never think... We've reached perfection. Let us never think 
that's going to be possible. Let us always understand that these warnings are for me. I'm in here. And if you don't know what a word means and you're being warned against it, go look it up. Okay? Because all of us struggle with this excess of dissipation, this temptation to, um, to overconsume, to squander the resources, the gifts God's given us. To summarize that, I would say the resources God has given us should be poured into the mission God has given us. Can I say that one more time? I think you missed it. The resources God has given us should be poured into the mission God has given us. And we will be constantly tempted to do other things with them. What do you mean? Everything, every part of me, all the resources I've been given? What, what this starts to form for you, when you see how big that call is, what it starts to shape for you is an accurate portrait of what God is asking of us. Yes, he is asking for a life completely, totally surrendered to him and about his business. Does that mean you never have leisure or rest? Absolutely not. He commanded rest. That's a part of what it looks like. But that rest should not be uh, a form of distraction to try to circumvent needing a savior. That rest should be, I've been, I've been going real hard about the Father's business for six days, so I'm going to take a day, take a breath, worship him, and I'm going to go again. You see what I'm saying? We, we, idolize, we, we idolize rest, and we don't think about it in terms of, of gospel mission, that's a waste of resources. Yes, I, I realize this sounds, well, this guy's extreme. I'm just reading the Bible to you, man. That's all we're doing. This whole series, I'm just reading the verses to you. <laughs> I'm just showing you what it says. And what we're called to is to not waste time like we used to. When we had no Savior, we had no King, we hadn't been brought together as a people, when we didn't know that there was hope for eternity and that there's a bunch of people that don't know that, when that wasn't on the radar of our thought life. But now that we do know those things, yes, we are called Every moment of the day, not in, not in a frantic way as if we, all of God's redemptive plan is, is sitting upon our shoulders. That's not what it looks like. But yes, all the time I should be thinking, is what I'm doing right now, does it have a purpose? Is, is, this, is this a waste? Is, is there some redeemable value to this? And there's a lot of things that, so we, part of what we have to do is get better at seeing where redeemable value is sometimes in common things, right? Because the overcorrection of this is to read these verses, understand what it's actually saying, and say, okay, i got to be a missionary in the jungle. It's the only way to answer that. No, it's not. Now, if God calls you to be a missionary in the jungle, you better just do what he says. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's like, I'm, uh, I'm not saying amen to that. <laughs> I love you guys. Um, but we need, we need to see the, the potential for um, value and, and being a part of God's redemptive plan in, in, in what we could classify as mundane, right? Just spending time and investing in the family and the people in your house. Just loving them well, serving them well, spending time with them, pouring into them. That absolutely is part of how uh, we are about the Father's business and we're, we're playing a part in his redemptive plan. Going to your job, why does the Bible give us commands like, do your work as unto the Lord? Why does the Bible say, uh, don't sit around and be slothful, that if you don't work, you, you don't eat? Um, because work is, is a part of God's redemptive plan. You're expected to, to, to do that, to work like Jesus is your boss, and in so doing, in the same way it's talking about here, by not doing all of these crazy things, by going and doing that thing in a way that is purposeful and intentional, and I'm praying before I go to work and saying, God, help me, anoint me today to do this job in such a way that it's excellent and it points to the fact that you're the one helping me do it. 
Help me do this job better than I'm physically capable of doing myself so that I can glorify you through it. All I do is turn bolts and stuff. Listen, man, you could be the best bolt turner in the bolt turning place. A lot of days what I'm doing is sticking my hands in other people's filth and unclogging their toilets and fixing their plumbing and doing this and that. But you know what? There's a person there that that toilet belongs to. So first of all, I've got an opportunity to intersect them and bring, bring something of the message of Christ to them. And when I don't have a bad attitude about it, which I, many times it takes me stepping back out of the place and having a conference with Jesus meeting for a second because people do things to their plumbing that uh, defies any, anything, any shred of logic. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But uh, I have an opportunity every single time I get in one of those situations to huff and puff and have a bad attitude or to see that there is potential redemptive value in every bit of what concerns my life um, and, and be intentional. And that's what we're called to. We don't have time to be out here jacking around, doing a bunch of stuff that if, if we really believe on Christ, we don't need to try to do what other people are doing. We don't have to try to distract ourselves in those ways. We, we have real hope. Uh, we don't have to try to get peace from substances or sex or illicit relationships or wh- wherever um, it is Peter's warning us about here. We don't, we don't have to do that. We have, we have peace and, and hope, and uh, those things come through the Spirit of God. And so we've been set free from those things. Hallelujah. I hope you're happy about it. Uh, overall, the idea is it matters what you do and what you don't do. There is an assumption on Peter's part that it's going to cost you something socially to follow Christ, which makes sense because it cost him everything to make it possible to follow him. Peter assumes it's going to cost you something socially, at, at the bare minimum. He, that's what he's saying here in verse Four, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess and dissipation. This is just another way he's saying what he's already said throughout the book. You're going to probably be persevered. If you, if you choose to follow the Lord and, and if you choose not to do these things that most people, is the way they're finding solace and the way they're trying to find peace, that's going to be different and thus it's going to cause a riff and, 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 and they might be convicted by it and so they may respond by trying to tear you down. Uh, and, and he's given us several different ways to respond to that. Um, one of them being to trust in what the next couple verses say. One way we, that doesn't get us all out of sorts is, is being able to put our trust in, in God as a righteous judge. The question for us is, his assumption is that somebody's going to be surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. So the question we should ask ourselves when this assumption is made as he's speaking to believers, do I live differently enough that those who don't believe would actually ever scorn me? Is, am I ever causing a rift when I'm out in the world because I'm not doing things that the Lord has said not to do and I am doing things? that uh, and, and that's what I'm saying. Somebody may not understand. There, there's prob- Maybe you've had a conversation. I know there's been people uh, that I know that Say they're pursuing each other for the possibility of marriage. They're choosing to guard each other's purity, to love each other actually and really, to push each other towards Christ so they're not uh, engaged physically. They're treating each other like a brother and sister in Christ, and there's a noble pursuit in doing that. And I, I have talked to them, and they've had to deal with 
Um, it's not just the guys, but a lot of times it's the guys. When they let somebody know that that's the way they're going at it, guys out in the world will be heckling them and calling them all kinds of names or whatever it is, like, what do you mean you can't get this done or whatever? And they, they can't even seem, right? And so there's, that's, that's kind of an example of what that looks like. Or somebody might hear that you give some certain percentage of your income on a regular basis for the preaching of the gospel. And somebody might say to you, are you, are you nuts? You could be sticking that in a something, 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 401 what, right? Like, what are you doing? You're wasting your money. They don't, and, and where, where the collision happens is when you start off to say, well, I mean, first of all, just if we're being technical here, I don't believe that's my money. I believe that's God's money. Um, and, and secondly, I, you know, whether I invest or I don't invest, ultimately my trust is in the Lord as far as provision is concerned. And so, uh, and I believe the gospel's worth investing into. It's the best, best investment I could make. So you see what I'm saying? Do you, do you do things? It's not just about not going to a drinking party, okay? I, I, I hope for the majority of us here, that's, that's not one that is, is, we're having a bunch of grappling with right now in the midst of this sermon. Um, but, but there is this reality, and, and this question should be asked. Not only do I live in such a way that it would cause unbelievers to scorn me, but do I look for opportunities to, to, not in a prideful way, but do I look for opportunities to live it out in such a way that it would invite scorn? Because um, actually what conversations that can start as someone scorning you can actually end up in them walking away with something to think about um, that might be really helpful for their eternity. So, uh, Verses 5 and 6. So, let me say this. This wasn't my intention, but how do you, what is Peter's prescription for dealing then with people that are surprised you're not going to run with them into the dissipation and, and they malign you? What should you do? You trust this. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ultimately, um, God's going to deal with that, and, and so we don't have to. Now, just I want to make sure I wanted to make sure I remember to connect that to four, and we see that. That's one way, and I think, I'll I'll get there. Peter, verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, and though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Peter, in another place, accused Paul of being hard to understand. You guys remember that? He said some of the things Brother Paul writes are hard to understand. Your boy Peter has some humdingers himself. This goes on the list. He's got a few things, man, that he, he writes about, and it's almost like there's a, a little bit of a knowledge gap. He's thinking of something, and, and we don't get as clear of a picture of what it really is as we would like. So I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we're not really sure. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. What does that mean? Um, some would say that what that means is during the time between Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, uh, there was a place where the, the, those that were deemed righteous by faith in the Old Testament times, uh, they would have been held in a place called Abraham's bosom. We, we see some of, a glimpse of that in the parable about Lazarus, right, where he's in Abraham's bosom and he asks, uh, dip the finger in the water uh, and, and cool my tongue. And then he wants uh, Abraham to send somebody to tell his brothers, right? You guys remember this parable? So, uh, that's, that talks about Abraham's bosom, and there's a, there's a break in it, and it's like this intermediary holding place where Old Testament saints that were deemed righteous by faith were, were held, and then Christ came and preached the gospel to them, and that that's a fulfillment of like when he talks about, you know, I've been sent to 
uh, sent to set the captives free, things of that nature. That's, that's one theory that that's what he's talking about here. Uh, the second is that it's talking about simply the fact that um, the gospel has been preached to many who have since died, and specifically talking about martyrs, and he's linking that to all of this and the fact that people were maligned and, and whatnot. So that one to me is a little weaker. I, I don't see it there. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you got to ask, are we totally sure what Peter meant there by the gospel has been uh, for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, we're, we're, we're not totally sure. Uh, but either way, really, that's just kind of, he's just saying, he's qualifying a point, and the point is verse 5, and that's this. Every man and every woman will stand before the judge of both the living and the dead. That is what we know. And this understanding is part of how we have compassion for those who may persecute us instead of anger or vengeance. Part of how we are encouraged in verse, to deal with verse 4, that as we live in obedience to Christ, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause us to kind of be running against the stream, and that people may malign us, people may persecute us. That may create for us problems in many different contexts. When that happens, what do you do? You remember that they're going to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And in the same way that Jesus Christ looked down from the cross, spent one of his last precious breaths asking for the forgiveness of the people that had just nailed him there, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When we think about the fact that somebody that's maligning us, somebody that's persecuting us, somebody that's giving us a hard time because we love and obey Jesus, if we remember that they're broken, if we remember that part of why they're lashing out like that is they're still blind and deaf to the truth, they don't understand what you've seen and what you've heard and what you know because of the grace of Christ, when we see them as a broken person lashing out of their brokenness, it allows us to think about the fact this person, just like everyone else, is going to face the judge of the living and the dead. And so instead of me feeling like I need to give vengeance on them in this moment because they're giving me a hard time, just like Jesus did, I can have compassion on them and I can care for them and I can pray for them. And that's how we do stuff like love our enemies, right? <laughs> Which is a big call. Jesus came and messed everything up. In the Old Testament, it was just fine. If somebody killed somebody, we killed them, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Someone was mean to you, you got to be mean to them. That was what God said. It's fine. You kill me, I'll kill you. My family will kill you. It's all even, Stephen. We're good, right? Like that made perfect sense. But then Jesus had to come along with this grace stuff and say things like, not only do you get to love your family, your neighbor, and people that are good to you, what credit is it to you if you love people that are easy to love? He said, you got to love your enemies. What? And then he goes on to define love for us in, in a way that doesn't let us think, well, if, if I just manage to give them a, a crack of a smile, I've loved them. He goes and defines love by stretching out his arms and dying on the cross for us, showing us what that really means. That I somehow have to live to serve and care for have compassion upon those that even make themselves my enemy. How we doing, everybody? Anybody else in this moment right here realize how much you need the help of God on a daily basis to come anywhere close to obeying him? I mean, if you think you've got this, you are not listening. I could have rocked the Old Testament. I would have been a superstar in the Old Testament. But then Jesus came and showed us what it was really about. Hallelujah. I'm glad he did. I'm thankful. And I'm humbled by him. The point is verse 5. 
And uh, verse 5 should cause us to be able to respond correctly to anybody that gives us a hard time about serving the Lord. Okay? Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So here, first of all, the end of all things is near. Um, <laughs> September 23rd didn't go so good, did it, for uh, whoever it was, whatever jackalope was calling the end of the world again. It's like it happens every year. I've almost stopped paying attention to it. It's, that, it's, it's like clockwork. They really like September for some reason. But um, So you, you can't... <clears throat> that's not the point of this, but here's the point. Yeah, September 23rd didn't happen, but you just got to realize... Peter, and you might say, well, Peter wrote that in 60 AD-ish. Uh, does that mean that he didn't know what he was talking about? Because here we are 2,000 years later. Dude, you're thinking, oh, I don't mean to say dude. In a, I'm not mad at you. Um, <laughs> brother, sister, you're thinking on a, time, a, a timeline that doesn't fit the frame of reference. 2,000 years is near when you're dealing with a God that 1,000 years is a day and a day is 1,000 years, and he's been... He's been around since eternity past and never began, right? Like, we are in the last step of the redemptive plan. Like, there was the fall, and then there's all of what he did with Israel through Egypt and, and the whole deal, the kingdoms, all of that, the exile. There's a lot, there's a big, lots of sections of time, and then Jesus comes. We're, we are in the last step, and so the end of all things is near when you think about it that way. But here's what we need to understand. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. And it's going to be nearer tomorrow than it was today. And so that leads us back to what we were encouraged earlier, man. We don't have time to mess around. That's why he's saying this. Friend, the end is near. Nearer than it was. <laughs> uh, so let's not play games. Therefore, so, so what do we do in light of that? Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And so... Uh, not only do we pray, but we need to stay ready and prepare for prayer. We need to think about the fact that I've been called to pray without ceasing, and so I've been called to stay in communication and connection with God throughout the day. And so when he's saying stay sober and, and be prepared for prayer, it's, it's not even just about having the discipline of getting into a place of where you're praying with God, but it's thinking a couple steps ahead of that even. If I do this thing or say this thing or make this decision, is this going to put me in a good position to be in communication with God? Is this going to put me in a good position to be in prayer? If I make this decision or make that decision, is, is it likely that I'm going to then be um, sober-minded and, and thus in a position to be in the kind of constant communication with the Father that He desires? So it's taken it even a step further. It's not just a question that I remember to bow my head when I ate my food and thank God for it. It's a question of every minute of every day. Am I not only <clears throat> staying connected to God in prayer, but am I like looking a couple steps ahead, looking at potential temptations that might knock me off course, um, things that might bring me out of a place of, of being in fellowship with the Lord, and, and am, I, am I juking those a couple steps back, right? Um, some young single man, you know, some, you got some young girl trying to catch your eye across the road, right? And, and you, know, you know she's interested, and you... you Listen, man, you need to be like Job, make a covenant with your eyes, bounce your eyes, and keep on rolling. Because you're over here flirting with some girl and, and being about that business. You're not going to be about the Father's business. You're not going to be in prayer. You're not going to be uh, 
paying attention to what it is he might be trying to use you to do in that moment as a part of his overall redemptive purposes in the earth, that ain't what you're going to be thinking about. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying a guy can't ever talk to a girl. I'm just saying, you know what I'm talking about. There's a difference. Um, and you should meet her in church and not on some random street anyways, okay? So go find yourself a body of believers and find a girl that loves the Lord. All right? Amen. Pastor Vince said you can only meet somebody in church. Uh, okay, legalist. I'm just saying in general. Peter got to speak in generalities, so I am too. All right? Verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Um, if you've been around any amount of time, you've probably heard me quote this. This verse is a part of an overall ideology that the, that the Bible gives us of, of what is of most importance. Peter here says, above all, he says a lot of important things, doesn't he? Addresses a lot of important issues. But he says, above all, keep fervent in love one for the other. This echoes uh, when our master was challenged. Uh, Teacher, give us the greatest commandment. Some, somebody challenges Jesus with that. Jesus says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And so again and again we see the Bible raise love to a place of supremacy as it pertains to what is our responsibility as the, the, those that have been created by God um, as, to reflect his image, those that have been called uh, according to his purpose, what is the primary thing that we should be concerned with? Um, Jesus said it's loving God and loving people. Peter here said, echoing his master, uh, above all else, above all these things I've told you, above everything else I've told you, keep this one thing in line. And, and he's not the only one. Paul said it too. Romans 13, owe no man anything to love him, but if you love your neighbor, you will have fulfilled the whole law. James called it the royal law, to love one another, to love your neighbor. Um, again and again, loving God and loving people is, is raised up as the, the high call of the Christian. And um, our conviction here, that's why it's our mission, to love God, love people, and make disciples. We believe that if we would, if we would focus on the impossible to do task. It is impossible for us to love God and love people to the degree that we have been called to without the help of the Holy Spirit. We will not do it because it means everybody. We're loving our enemies. We're loving fun people and difficult people and, and everybody. Uh, and, 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 and Jesus makes that clear because you might say, well, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So he's saying, well, keep fervent in your love for other Christians. That is in there, and we are told to give special care to those that are part of the household of faith. That's absolutely true. However, uh, Jesus dealt with this idea because after somebody challenged him about what the greatest commandment was, if you remember, um, he said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And somebody thought they'd be smart and said, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus. And Jesus smacks him down with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? And what's the point of that? This, this guy falls into robbers, beat him up, leave him in a ditch. You know, a priest goes by, a Pharisee goes by, everybody circles around the guy, doesn't want to mess with him, but then the Samaritan stops, puts him on his beast, pays for his care, loves him. And Jesus says, so these guys didn't live anywhere near each other. They weren't even from the, the, the same group of people, but who was a neighbor that day? And so what principle did he teach? 
When he calls us to love our neighbor, he's calling us to love anybody that's near us that needs to be loved. All the time. That's, that was the answer. Who's my neighbor? Who, who needs to be loved in that moment that you can see? Congratulations, you have a neighbor. I mean, half of us ain't doing real good with the, the people we would actually call neighbors that live on our street, right? I mean, most of us are struggling with that. Much less uh, being on 360 swivel all the time looking for people to love and care for, which is the call of God. And he says, above all, that we keep fervent in that. Um, because love covers a multitude of sins. When you're, when you're about the love of God, when you're filled with the love of God, when you're overcome with the love of God and you're about loving others, it's going to be a lot harder for you to get offended and you're going to be a lot less likely to offend others. Um, you will be less tempted to sin because your life and your eyes and your heart and your mind will be focused upon what God desires, uh, which is, according to 1 Peter earlier, for all men to be saved. Uh, he, you will be about his business. You will be thinking about helping and loving others as opposed to how to serve and gratify yourself. You, you will be less prone to sin, um, and you will be less likely to sin against others, and you will also be much quicker to forgive others of their sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. It does it every way. For sins that you would commit, sins that are committed against you, love really uh, puts a wet blanket on that fire, and it helps. Uh, it's the answer, really. It's given to us over and over again. Uh, we get focused on a lot of auxiliary stuff, man. We get focused on attempts at theological precision in areas that I'm not sure we have any business messing around in, and you got people trying to figure out stuff without having given much thought at all to, do I love God and love people anywhere close to where I've been called to? Is that the, is that the supreme point of my life at this point? Do I have any business dealing with any of the deeper theological issues of God and his word and all of that, if I haven't even given an attempt at putting first thing first, can I even actually accurately interpret who God is, what he does, what he's about, if, if I've not been overcome by the love of God? Should the love of God not be the grid with which I look through the scriptures and understand who God is and what he's talked about? It seems like he's put it up uh, as, as the high bar. Again and again, not just one time. I don't have just one verse for you. We can go front to back on that. Again and again and again. Love is the key. I'm glad you're as excited about that as I am. Amen. Uh, verse 9. One way we love people is be hospitable to one another without complaint. One of the, one of the marks of a Christian um, is, is not just... Because here's what we'd be tempted to do in that. Okay, it says, be hospitable without complaint. Okay, so I have to invite people for dinner and not complain about it. Okay, good, I can do that. No, man. What he's, what he's getting at is that your heart would be to the place where you really want them to come. And you actually want to be around somebody. And you actually believe there will be value there. Would you stop trying to get just the bare minimum behavior modification and understand Jesus is always getting to your heart, man. He's always dealing with that. If you don't want to have people come to your house, if you don't want to love and, and serve others and be hospitable, that's what you got to deal with. Lord, help me understand why that isn't a desire for me. Why do I dread it? Am I insecure? Am I afraid if I spend too much time with somebody, they're going to find out something about me or I'll say something stupid, so am I ruled by fear? Am I just mean and lazy and stingy and I don't want them to eat my food? Right? Like, What is the problem? And Lord, help me deal with that. As opposed to just, 
inviting someone over and white-knuckling it through dinner. And See, there, I didn't complain. Did it, right? No, man. If you really love people, you'll actually want to be around them. You'll want to be hospitable. You'll want to invite unbelievers and believers to spend time with you uh, because you'll see the, the value of, of Jesus ministering to them through you. Uh, and you'll really love them. It, and they won't just be a project, right? Like, you'll really desire to get to know them and, and, and just have a relationship with them with the hope that out of that, out of the reality of that, there's opportunities then to speak the truth. Opportunities to speak truth rarely come outside of the context of love and relationship. But that's our problem, man. We run around with bullhorns yelling at everybody. Nobody's listening. Ain't nobody listening to that. But if you really show somebody you love them, now I don't mean do enough nice things to, to maybe trick them. I mean that you really love them. If you really love somebody and listen as much as you talk, um, they, they might slow down long enough to hear about this Jesus that you love and that has loved you. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, even in your heart. Even in my heart? Yeah. See, in the Old Testament, it would have been fine if we could just got through it without saying something, right? No. Jesus came and raised the bar, didn't he? Amen. It says, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This gets back to not dissipation, but being good stewards. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified. Um, verse 10, this speaks to those who feel they have no gift and also to those who know they have a gift and are selfish with it. So let me just quickly say this. There are some of you that believe the lie that God has not gifted you in some way. That he's, when he came in, he didn't bring something to the dance. That's really what you're saying. If, you, if you're saying, God hasn't gifted me in some way to be a part of gospel mission and redemptive history, here's really what you're saying. When God came and indwelt me by his spirit, he didn't bring anything with him. You going to say that out loud? Go ahead. Nope. Okay. Each one has received a special gift. So I know Satan has told you you're good for nothing for how many years and you've bought it. Let me just be right now a voice speaking truth and love to smash that lie into pieces. God has made you and done things in you and he expects you to steward those things well and use those for his glory. All of what we've been given should be poured back into mission for the glory of God. So you do have a gift from God. Well, I don't know what it is. That'd be a great reason for you to do a couple things. Pray, ask for God to reveal it to you. B, get to know some people that can look into your life and say, hey, you know what? Maybe you don't realize you're good at this, but um, when I see somebody struggling, you know, you're, you're really good at like understanding that. And, and it seems like maybe God's given you a gift of empathy or, or you know, you're, you're really good at organizing things. You don't talk about it a lot, but I've seen you in a couple situations, just everything's chaos and you just kind of put it together real quick. And I didn't even know how to start that, right? Like these are... You do have a gift. God has put things in you that then if you bring it together into the collective of the church of God into a body, um, maybe it'll even make more sense, right? Because a finger probably wouldn't feel very useful if he was just out by himself hanging out, right? Like, but you stick him on a hand that's connected to an arm that's connected to a shoulder. It's like, oh, that's what that does. You see what I'm saying? And so in isolation, yeah, I could see how maybe we wouldn't believe the truth, but 
You've been gifted by God, and he expects you to use it as a good steward because the gift he put in you is part, it's a manifest of his grace, um, and it's, it's him being generous to you. So uh, he put it in you because he wants you to use it. Um, and, then, and then there are those who know that they have a gift, and, and they're selfish with it. Uh, there, are those, there are people that have realized that God's put something in them. Um, and some of these things I think God even, even weaves into, and in, in, in we would call it kind of a natural gifting, but in the way God builds each person uniquely, they, they tend to be good at certain things. And there's a whole lot of people that have taken those good things God has put in them, and they've used it solely for the purpose of sordid gain, just doing their own thing, fulfilling their own needs and wants and whatever. Um, and, and that won't do. That is... That is absolutely unacceptable in light of the fact, A, that God is the sovereign king of everything that spoke and created everything. Furthermore, that uh, he sent his son to die in our place for our sins so that we could be with him forever. In light of those couple of things, all that he's given us, every single thing we have is a good gift from him, and it's expected to be stewarded well and to be turned back over to him uh, for his glory and for the fulfilling of his purposes. Um. If you, if you were walking out here at the store and you saw some, some huge bodybuilder dude walk by uh, an elderly woman struggling with a door and she's just not strong enough to open it, and guy looks at her and just walks on by, I mean, how, how would you feel about that guy? What kind of word would you use to describe him? Don't say it out loud. But what, what would go through your head, right? That, that it's kind of disgusting, and you probably have, you know, less than, less, less than a holy word that would come to your mind to describe him, and so... Um, that's a lot of what it's like when God gives you certain strengths, man, and you're just walking by people all the time that, that could really use help with what you're good at, but you couldn't be bothered. It's inconvenient or whatever, whatever your deal is, right? So um, don't be that guy, okay? Um, verse 11 is, whoever speaks is to do so as if you're speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves, do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The point here, guys, is don't just use your gift. Do it with excellence by the power of the Spirit. Understand that even though God has given you this gift, it's not going to be able to be activated to its fullest potential without surrender to the Spirit of God and without Him helping you. Um, and, and when you do it that way, when you, when you, if, you if, if it's your gift to speak, man, speak by the power of the Spirit, because that's going to point directly, not, not to the guy with the gift, but to the gift giver. If you are gifted to serve, do it by the power of the Spirit. Don't settle for anything less than excellence in the way your gift is manifest in helping other people. And when you do that, when you do it in a way that it, it just clearly points to the fact, this is, this is something going on here. It's, it's beyond what this person could be doing themselves. It points to the giver of the gift, and it doesn't just exhort or glorify the gift. And, and that's the problem. A lot of times we get focused on the gift, and we forget the giver. And this is part of how we don't do that. We, our minds should be focused upon, and our hearts should be bent towards, and our hope should be that we can be a part of, in all things, God being glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the high call of all these things. That's what we're hoping for. Um, when we keep fervent in our love, which affects all of these other things, overall what we're hoping is when we do that, 
it points to the one who's the author of love, the one who is the very source of all of it. Um, it's not so that we can get a pat on the back and get our love, uh, love everyone good badge, right? Um, it's so ultimately people can see that our God is love and that he's worthy to be worshipped. It's about his glory. Praise God. May we be a people who see the time and resources we've been given as the precious gift they are and use them accordingly. May we be a people who, above all else, keep fervent in love. And may we be a people who joyfully serve one another by the power that God supplies. For his glory and our good, amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these verses. We thank you for the truth that they contain. We thank you for every part of it that challenges us, Lord. We thank you for what convicts us. We thank you, God, for what uh, humbles us. We know that you're a good father, that you don't uh, leave us to our own devices, but that you deal with us, that you're involved. Thank you that you've given us your word as a mirror, that we can read these things and we can see the reflection, see how we stack up. And when we fall short, I thank you, Lord, we don't have to surrender to condemnation and, and just uh, be overcome with darkness and senses of, of being a failure. But I thank you, Lord, we can rise up in victory, trusting that your grace is available, that we can hope in your promise to forgive us and to empower us by your grace to keep going, to push back against these things that would try to entangle us, these chains that would try to hold us back. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you've called us to be good stewards of every single thing you've given us, all the time and energy, the talent. Thank you, God, that you've been gracious in gift-giving. Lord, may we quickly and with joy pour back into your mission every gift we've been given. May we use the things you've given us for the purpose they were created because that's where they're going to work the best. Thank you for the joy that comes in being in our place and doing what it is you've made us to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for showing us what love is. Thank you for not asking us to be loving without first showing us what it means. Thank you for your cross that defines love perfectly, where we see you, the, the most important, serving us the least, where we see you, the great and holy one, being brought low for the sake of those that you love. Lord, help us to do that with everyone, not just people we want to. Help us to really love and have compassion for, even those that would malign us for the very fact that we're seeking to live the way you've called us to live. Lord, we need your power for all these things. We cannot do it. We admit that and we trust that you'll answer our prayer and help us. We want to obey you, Lord. We just need your help. Thank you for being faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.